Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. If I asked, do you like the Naked Reflections podcast? It would be an open question. If I asked, what do you like about the Naked Reflections podcast? Well, I'd be nudging you in a positive direction. Nudge theory is our subject this week. It entered the political lexicon relatively recently, but the basic concept is as old as the hills. Here's the evolutionary biologist Randolph Ness speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast from Rosetta with love. Negative emotions such as fear and anger, which had survival value during our evolutionary history, may become maladaptive in modern society, where the threats are less immediate and less tangible. Positive emotions appear to have evolved in response to opportunities rather than threats, and they provide information that our environment is benign and that our goals and relationships are worth pursuing. How does nudge work when it's developed as a policy tool? Placing fresh fruit at eye level by the supermarket checkout would count as nudge, but banning junk food would not. Is nudge theory a euphemism for psychological manipulation, a sort of libertarian paternalism, or is it a practical way of improving things? Well, with me to discuss nudge theory are Dr. Beth Singler, Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at Homerton College, Cambridge, and a regular contributor to Naked Reflections, and Dr. David Halpin, Chief Executive of the Behavioural Insights Team. David has worked as the Chief Analyst at the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and is author of Inside the Nudge Unit. Welcome both. So when did nudge theory become mainstream? There was some discussion, of course, about choice architecture in a book in 2008, but David, tell us more about it. It really kind of picked off in a big way from, you mentioned the 2008 book, Nudge, which is an unexpected hit in many ways, built on an earlier series of papers called around libertarian paternalism, um, which was the original working title actually for the book Nudge. But otherwise, it also then went to another level when Obama became president. He brought Cass Sunstein, one of the co-authors, into the White House. And then in 2010, in Downing Street, we set up the Behavioral Insights team and it started delivering results. And that clearly has had a big impact. Now it's estimated perhaps 300 such units across the world. And what impact did it have then under David Cameron? He was the one who set up the team with you, David, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Although, in fact, some of the work had begun before Cameron took over. And to set the context, I think, is it rather important. So you had an incoming centre-right government, which was generally looking for alternatives to hard regulation, as you say, like uh, mandating that you can't have junk food sold anymore, and looking for sort of softer alternatives. And also a government which, frankly, was kind of broke, an 8% structural deficit, so looking for cheaper alternatives. And those two things created a very powerful enabling environment to at least give it a chance. And that's what we did. We set up this team actually with the sunset clause, two years to see if it would work or not, and set to work as to whether it would in fact be effective. And we took on some quite simple things. Can we get people to pay their tax on time? Help if you've got a structural deficit. Can we get people back to work faster? Can we get fines paid in, in the courtroom? And then gradually expanded onto lots of other areas as well. Uh, one of the other key details is that it also, you might call it a Trojan horse for it, basically brought in a very strong form of empiricism to government, which is relatively alien, particularly the use of randomized controlled trials. The Revenue Service, HMRC, might send out literally millions of letters, but it would send out the same letter to everyone. 
So it was quite a radical idea that Ed will send you a different letter than we're going to send to Beth and see as to whether one of those leads you to be faster to pay your tax back. That was itself quite a significant and important innovation, I would say, in its own right. Beth, as an anthropologist, nudge theory must be as old as the hills. It's not a new thing, surely. No, absolutely. I think uh, we see lots of different variations of this idea under different terminology over the centuries that you can even go way, way back to how different stories and narratives and even parables shape conversations and lead people into particular behaviours. And that kind of forms a technology of its own. But now more contemporarily, we're talking about it in terms of nudges. It's a more recent term. And there's a question of whether those nudges should be directed in particular ways towards particular behaviours. The examples given of sort of paying tax on time speak to simplicity and a clarity that makes sense. But whether nudges should be enforced in different directions for more moral behaviour or more kind of communal behaviours that have wider spread changes for society and who gets to push those things in particular directions. There's lots of interesting questions raised by it. I mean, in some sense, we're all in the nudging game. Any parent is in the nudging game, right? Where they're trying to persuade their child, certainly their teenager, to do something. And they know there's a right or a wrong way of saying it. But what we can also say, I think, there are a lot of things which there's generally kind of agreement. You know, we kind of, no one enjoys paying their taxes, but you don't want to pay your neighbor's taxes. And if it turns out, for example, to make this a real example, we, we found adding a line saying, most people pay their taxes on time, or most people in your area pay their tax on time. You're one of the few to do so led to a 15% increase in the payment in the month following for late taxpayers with no further prompt. In fact, you, in this case, you are underestimating how moral your neighbours are, which is a, a general bias. We overestimate bad behaviour in other people and correcting that leading to that effect. So it's very few people, I think, have violent objections to that. In fact, it seems a pretty nice and sensible thing to do. But that doesn't mean to say there wouldn't be use cases where we think, mm, am I sure? Absolutely. So, I mean, from the acronym that the Nudge Unit uses, EAST, it should be easy, attractive, social and timely. That social aspect, the the effect of peer pressure. One of the questions I, I'm thinking around here is, you know, who gets to be the peers? So we see these kinds of influences, these nudges on communities, and it works at this large scale level, but also at much smaller scale levels in digital communities. Some of my research looks at that actually the question of who is presenting the message, what kind of access to epistemic capital they have, what kind of charismatic authority they have, and what kind of messaging they're doing, we see examples where nudging leads to behaviours that actually is against the public good. So sort of anti-mask conspiracism at the moment, or further back I looked at anti-vaccination conspiracism, it's the same sort of influence. It's not a mystical process. It's been happening for centuries, as we say, but we're concerned, as you say, who's nudging the nudges, what, what direction those nudges go in. So it's interesting to see something that works kind of virally in the social media sphere also being implemented in policy as well. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, if you go back to the parenting example, it's often one of the most important thing a parent can do is try and influence who the peer group will be. The peer group does the heavy lifting. So you try and... Try and ch- Help your child choose good peers, right? Is that the role of government? A different question. But yes, it gets you into that, that space in broad terms. What can be done about the, the, those who are arguing against vaccinations, the anti-vaxxers from a nudge point of view, if they're using nudge against nudge, is it my nudge is bigger than yours? <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. I think that we're seeing narratives being disseminated virally online about what is the truth and who has access to the truth. And if we can educate about the scientific basis 
of the actual uh, limits and abilities of vaccinations that would push back against that level of conspiracism. But again, you know, the charismatic authority of particular individuals or groups of individuals who've, who've formed um, societies and collectives is difficult sometimes to push back against, uh, especially with that suspicious level towards government interference in those procedures and narratives, the suggestion that government is doing something secretive and bad with vaccines and the whole 5G conversation as well overlaps with that. So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to to push back against online virality of ideas. But again, it's the same sort of process of nudging that we're seeing. There's something ironic, David, isn't there, about the fact that the work of the nudge unit may actually have provided the means for groups like anti-vaxxers to influence wider society? Um, I and mean, we've jumped into quite, of course, a complex and important issue. But don't forget, there's lots and lots of quite simple use cases which are really important. So getting people back to work, you know, several decades, we had a system based, you know, perfectly sensible in its own right called active welfare. You know, you ask people to prove they're looking for work. And we ran a trial with the theory that instead of asking people to prove what they've done last week, it's asking what they're going to do next week. And this is based on a body of work around so-called implementation intention. If you encourage someone to think ahead and plan, you know, Ed, how are you going to go um, about finding that new job? Where, you know, what websites will you look at? What time of day will you do it? People become much more likely to do it. And in fact, we, sh- we found sure enough that people were significantly, basically two to four days faster on average back into work. And then if you're doing that for two and a half million people, it also is just nicer because it's not a sort of sanction and we don't trust you. Instead, we're actually trying to facilitate and help you. And one of the really interesting things we saw improvements in the mental health and well-being of the advisors in the job centres as well as the improved outcomes. They might seem mundane, but they're also really important use cases where there's a way of supporting or nurturing people or making a public service more effective before we get into the sheer raw complexities of what's happening on social media and the arguments that are raging out there. So is it about the positive message, David? In other words, we had Gert Randhawa talking to us about the transplant policy and trying to increase the number of organ donations and changing the language in terms of organ donation and the person who receives it rather than the person who gives it and so on. So is there something about the positive message that stimulates us to do these things? It can be. I mean, human beings are really complicated. And what drives our behaviour is a series of social factors and lots of kind of shortcuts and mental heuristics we use. And a lot of our behaviour is relatively automatic. So there are often examples like the one you gave. And in fact, we did further work. I can tell you about it on organ donation. That actually did find a very, very similar story around a positive message. So it's a beautiful example, actually, from Saudi Arabia from a year or two ago around women in the labour market, which Cass Sunstein has also talked about where if you ask men, what do you think other men think about their wives going to work? Well, most men think they frown on it, basically. And you say, well, what do you think? And then it turns out most most men say, well, I'd be fine. I think it'd be great if my wife worked, she'd enjoy it and so on. When you then give the feedback to those individuals about what most people actually think, you find a very significant increase in the number of their wives who are then, in fact, working three months later. To understand the contours of human behavior, we can try and bring out the best in each other than the worst, I think is one way of thinking about it. Or a more prosaic way is we think about it as being the kind of WD-40 of public services. Can you take away the frictions and the barriers and the annoyances to make it all work better? I think it's very valuable to emphasize your point there that human behavior is messy and often irrational 
and we overestimate how rational we are. And I think one of the the cautions I have about nudging or behavioral sciences in this direction is that you start with very good intentions of recognizing that perhaps humans are not homo economicus, we're not econs, as you put it in your book, that we're not these purely rational units reducible to, to quantitative measures. But over time, this this entire process itself becomes simplified to we can nudge people to do things. It becomes more of a kind of a lever system. If we push this thing down, this comes up. And I think the natural human tendency to reduce things to simpler and simpler systems might be problematic over time. And we have to keep kind of pushing back against that and saying, actually, it's a lot more complicated than we think it is. Well, there's a couple of things in there. I mean, I have a whole chapter in Inside the Nudge Unit about you know, how important it is who nudges the nudges. I think this is a totally key question. And the, one of the ways in which in the North American literature it's handled, where it, it's originated, is, is to really hold on to this idea that any nudge, to be a nudge, it has to be choice enabling, right? Or it shouldn't take away a choice. So the very famous example is around pensions, where we've seen on both sides of the Atlantic, if you change the default, so instead of having to opt into your pension and fill out a form, you opt out if you don't want to. And it is breathtakingly effective. 91% of people go with the default. There are more than 10 million extra people, for example, in the UK saving pensions as a result of that default change. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and I'm discussing nudge theory with my guests David Halpen and Beth Singler. The psychologist Professor Felicia Hubbard indirectly endorses the use of nudging interventions in the public sphere in an article she wrote about the book The Science of Wellbeing on the Naked Scientist website. Epidemiological studies show that individual levels of happiness are directly related to the average levels of happiness in the group or population, so there is a strong case for interventions at the population level. For example, providing opportunities for prospective parents as well as children and adolescents to learn positive attitudes and coping skills could lead to major improvements in health and behavioral outcomes later in life. Moreover, the evidence suggests that improving average levels of mental health in the population will have the direct result of reducing the number of people with common mental disorders. Therefore, a positive mental health agenda represents a win-win situation in which individuals can flourish and society is the beneficiary. Well, no one would disagree with that, but I do think we need to explore how robust is the sort of behavioural science we're discussing. Is it robust? You're a behavioural economist, David, would you say? Would you stand up and defend nudge theory? Obviously you would, but how? Well, I think the best thing it's got going is its methods. So it could be brought in other areas, but it happens, particularly the way we pursued it in the UK and more generally in the behavioural insights team, was the use of very, very strong methods. So randomised controlled trials and so on. In fact, it turns out, and one of my other roles is as a national advisor on what works, this is a lesson for lots of other areas. Even if you don't care about nudge, get good about methods. You know, why do you think this is a good way of teaching maths or in a school versus one way or another? Uh, let's get quantitative. And, and the fact is, a lot of policy is based on supposition and relatively weak evidence and professional practice. So we should take that lesson much, much more widely. So it is unusual, in fact, that the practitioners of behavioral kind of insight, behavioral science, are able much better than others to say an answer to that question. There are two recent meta-analyses on it specifically. So there's one by Liz Linus in the US who reanalyzed, we gave access to a load of our US results in US cities and also the White House team results and looked at academic studies in the same area. And just taking simple nudges, she found the average effect size was an 8% improvement. 
across a whole range of activities. Now, that might not sound a lot, but in world of policy, that is a very big deal. Imagine you could just kind of wave a wand and anything you touch have an 8% improvement, how you collect taxes or how many kids graduate from school or whatever. That's a pretty big deal. There is a particular issue which has crept into the literature, which is important, which is that there's been a number of issues around the academic side around replication, where some high profile trials, which were very eye catching, were done with very small samples and have failed to replicate. One of the things that Liz Linus picks up in her reviews is the average sample sizes in the academic trials tend to be about 500. The average sample sizes in the BIT work or the White House team is 10,000. So there's an underlying robustness in terms of the trials, which, as it happens, is very unusual for policy and, and probably actually for academia. So, yeah, we can give a good answer on that one. Are you convinced, Beth? Well, robust is a really interesting word to an anthropologist and to anyone who thinks about the history of science more broadly that, you know, we sort of have these understanding of scale of hardness and softness of science. Now, I'm not I'm not claiming to be a hard scientist by any means, but this assumption that evidence comes in particular forms. And I can see for policy, it's it's more likely that numbers based quantitative evidence is more significant. But for anthropology, we go completely the other end. So I like to blow some scientists minds by introducing them to an ethnography of one person that I know of. I've forgotten the name of it for this moment. But this idea that actually qualitative evidence can bring insights that doesn't fit into the normal format of scientific evidence. And I think both are valuable, obviously. And I noticed from uh, David's work that he did ethnographic research in employment offices, seeing what the environment was like, watching people interact. And that's that's what anthropologists do as well. But the question of reproducibility doesn't really even come up in anthropology. My favourite summary of anthropology that a friend used that I keep bring, going back to is that it's elegantly theorised gossip. And there's nothing wrong with that because that is in itself a form of evidence. So I think uh, interdisciplinarity is useful. I wouldn't want to comment on the robustness of behavioural sciences because I'm not from that area. But I think all these different insights into human behaviour are very valuable. Let's move the conversation on to COVID-19 and responses. What COVID has just really reminded everyone, if they needed reminding, is that there's a lot of human behaviour involved in these things. And if you think about a pandemic, you have three lines of defence, all of which turn out to have massive behavioural components. So your first line of defence is basically everyday habits and space space. How are you going to get people to wash their hands when you can't observe it, you know, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you are absolutely in the behavioural persuasion game. You can look at the clinical evidence and say, actually, it turns out it is worth it. It's a wonderful BMJ study. So, you know, if people do wash their hands more often, it does protect them in various ways, you know. So, so you've got that on that side. The second line of defense actually is also behavioral. So if you build, for example, a test and trace system, you have all kinds of issues around, well, will the right people turn up for having tests? You know, we're a very live issue. You know, you want people with symptoms to come in. Absolutely. You don't want the worried world to come in too much. If they do have COVID, guess what? You've got another behavioral issue. Hey, Beth, I'm sorry, you got COVID. Or even worse than that, you haven't got COVID. We don't know if you do. Ed did and you were talking to him. You've got to stay at home for the next two weeks. Well, how are we going to get you to comply? Right? This is very, very much again behavioral. And even when you think you got a treatment in the form of a vaccine, you've still got issues you were touching on earlier around anti-vaxxers. Well, will people take it? Will they be worried? 
what be really useful on the messaging side that I haven't seen so much of, but perhaps I'm wrong, is that we haven't seen a really big lean into the sort of the disgust side, the contagion side. So if we're talking about behavioural fatigue, we should perhaps look at public health behaviours that have not died out over hundreds, if not thousands of years and think of anthropological work like Mary Douglas's work on purity and danger and taboo, where concepts of contagion have actually maintained the health of communities and cultures over a long time. And this is literally a contagion. This should be the best use case of contagion theory. And we should be leaning into the disgust to help people make correct decisions. I think what I've really seen with the messaging so far is quite sanitized, like even the hand, space, face, I always get them the wrong order. It's clean lines. It's simple slogans. We should be seeing more of the actual effect. There was a very viral video recently that had um, a gentleman in a pub opposite a friend. They both had a pint of beer each. And as the gentleman was, he was being recorded by someone else, probably without permission, very wrong. But as he was speaking to his friend, you could literally see the spit he was making coming out and going into his friend's beer. And I think if we emphasise, probably more through actors than actual video footage of people in pubs, if we emphasise this sort of disgust and horror element, and then people say, you know, you make people panic. But I think there hasn't been enough. There's, there's, there's numbers and there's graphs and there's slogans and there's Boris telling us to all kind of chivvy up and work together. I don't think there's been enough. And we saw in the early days of the, the pandemic lockdown, an increase of people watching horror films about viruses. And I think that narrative is there and we should unpack it and bring it about more in our, our slogans. I mean, that's, you know, I don't know if the government's going to go for an idea of increasing horror in the community, but I think contagion theory from anthropology would be very interesting at this point. So an example of how you use behavioural science on an issue like this, right, is that if you take the hand washing campaign, is what's an effective message or poster? So we did work with colleagues in um, the, you know, the comms teams or whatever, uh, and then we, would, we tested variations on the posters and the images. And so essentially what we're doing, you, know, you take several thousand people, they see a version of a poster and you might ask them, you know, can you remember what it said and so on and so on. So one of the things that actually goes exactly to what you're saying is issues of disgust. So if you can remember those images, in fact, they're still around a lot of them, where it's like a handprint, a handle, and you can sort of see fingerprints in green. One of the things it's based on is that is actually discussed is that people don't like the idea of germs if you visualize them. In fact, it's more specific than that. We don't like other people's germs. So one of the things you want to make effective is that it's often you see other people's hands or germs rather than your own, because that triggers more disgust and um, you want to do something about it. So the images were refined. Similarly, the messages were trimmed right down into their most basic form. And elsewhere, disgust has been used very powerfully on it. There is an interesting problem, which is a absolutely contemporary one, which is, is an argument that, in fact, on the horror point, it went too far. And a lot of economists, of course, are worried that there's a big chunk of the population who are now terrified to go out at all, even if they take appropriate measures. And that may not be great for their well-being, and it certainly may not be great for the economy. So some of that stuff does feature. I'm not saying it's enough. and I'm not saying by any means everything's been perfect. But that is a good example that you describe, which is how you can tune a message to make it more impactful and get picked up. Well, we're coming towards the close and we have touched on but not explored this question of who nudges the nudges. David. So I think it's really important. I mean, our work, of course, was built inside a democratic government um, serving ministers. We generate lots of ideas. 
some of them good, some of them probably not so good. And entirely appropriate, sometimes ministers would say, I don't like that idea. I think that's a really awful one. I think I'll be offensive or whatever it will be. And they provide a check and balance. I have always been a, a fan uh, of deliberative forum where you bring together groups of the public and you say, what do you think we should do? So I am a very big believer in, in that you can strengthen those mechanisms. And one of the things that behavioral scientists can usefully do is lay bare those forces that are influencing our behavior, which we may not be fully aware of, so that we can not only change it potentially on the individual level, like we can literally think, oh, you know, I, I figured out that if I bring all the cookies or the cake in when I'm watching TV, they all mysteriously disappear. And then I feel overfull. you know, I could make an individual choice, but it's hard for me to make an individual choice about what happens in the supermarket and what's presented. So some of those things become collective. There's something else. You, you gave the quote from um, Felicia, which is that there's this very interesting relationship between behavioral scientists and people who study well-being. And we ourselves did a lot of work in the area. You may know we work on the Cameron work. Um, I led it uh, in number 10 on well-being and the well-being measures we put out. And why is there a strong relationship? It's because we are, as humans, are prone to misremember what made us happy and mispredict what will make us happy, which is quite a profound thing when you get into it, right? So how do we have the wisdom and the intelligence, both individually and collectively, to work out what are those things and to try and shape the world around ourselves to make it better, including for our well-being? And it turns out those same biases that might mean that we keep putting off until tomorrow, saving for our pension, probably also make us make errors around things which actually go fundamentally to our well-being as well. So do you want just some clever person in Whitehall figuring that all out? I don't think so. But they can inform some of that, and then we can have debates about how do we want to shape the world to make it better in quite a deep sense. That should be on the table. Yeah, I absolutely agree on the suggestion of the involvement of citizen juries. I've been involved with projects with those before around the public's desire for AI to be involved in certain aspects of their lives and directing them and making decisions for them. I think what also should be borne in mind, if something starts in government, the government itself can be the result, iterative result of nudging of the populace towards a particular direction. We've seen this with elections and the influence of social media messaging. So it's never possible to kind of start from a neutral day one and say, this is this is the legit non-biased, non-nudged situation that can purely create a non-biased process afterwards. That kind of iterative process needs to be borne in mind as well. I think that's a very uh, complex situation. I think it's very interesting to see how this will develop going forward as well. Well, since we've got Beth here, and I think this is such an interesting and important area. This is not just governments. Of course, there's some very large corporations which are also shaping that world and using massive levels of AI, machine learning and so on. And so we think it's a really neat area. There's a beautiful intervention that was done, I think merits much more profile, by, of all people, the Royal Society of Public Health, who did a survey of 15-year-olds asking about how when they use social media, it affects their mood, their well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out social media is definitely not all the same. For example, a 15-year-old using Instagram basically makes them feel like crap. You know, if a 15-year-old girl, as of certainly two years ago. Whereas YouTube, you know, it's terrible for your sleep, but it doesn't make you feel crap. Now, why that's neat, it goes, Ed, to your point about transparency, is that if you can get that out there, you start to, in our view, that's a form of a nudge. In fact, it's a particular word it's called deshrouding. You reveal a characteristic of a product or a service and you make an Instagram's problem, right? Because if they start losing users, then we start to become able to shape it. And similarly, I think Facebook, they've been quite overt about this, about, you know, the community. 
Well, how much does a community really get to shape the characteristics and the design of Facebook feeds? Historically, it's not been very much. And even though I know there's a lot of interest, in fact, my, my friend Cass Sunstein was involved in some discussions around this, creating a Supreme Court to sort of set the rules about what can and can't go on Facebook. But I think that's kind of not a bad start. But really, is it Supreme Court and judges we want deciding this? Why can't users have a mechanism within which they can shape the characteristic of social media, right? And I think, so I guess I'm saying it's not only governments, it's a lot of the forces that are out there. We want to try and understand what those influences are and put those choices back in the hands of the users and the citizens, right? That's a really good answer to who nudges the nudges. Well, I'm going to nudge you towards the conclusion that we've reached the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, David Halpin and Beth Singler. And thanks to you too for listening. If you like what you heard, please get in touch with any reflections of your own and you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk and let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. 